You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMARQU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by Open Text Public Sector Executive and Global Government Thought Leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. If you look at emerging technologies, you know, AI, for example, the Chinese government, um, the sophistication coming out of the Chinese government on AI, you know, setting a national strategy, you know, understanding the impact of artificial intelligence, machine learning and robotics in the economy is, I would argue, far greater in the Chinese government than it is in the United States government. Unfortunately, I do think that particularly on technology issues where so much of the expertise lives outside of government, I do think that that is particularly harmful. Now, there are a couple, there are always some good people, like there are, there are some good people in the Biden administration right now who understand these things. But the fact that I can name them is a problem. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. The first thing I do this morning is make coffee. I roll out of bed, brew a pot, and make breakfast for the kids. I'm leaving for a business trip today, so I pack an overnight bag and book a ride share to the airport. My wife Felicity and I wrangle the kids into the car, and Felicity drops them off at school on our way to elementary school where she teaches. As everyone starts their day, I'm passing through security. Now boarding, fasten your seatbelts and prepare for takeoff. By 9 a.m., I'm in the air. It's an uneventful morning, but when you peel back its layers and examine the invention and ingenuity that powers our daily lives, it can boggle the mind. In less than three hours, I went from sleeping in my bed to flying across the country, soaring thousands of feet in the air in an insulated metal tube. It's a feat of science, technology, engineering, and mathematics that humans in most previous eras would have considered something like sorcery. Yet I sit here unfazed, scrolling through emails. We hardly notice it, but our lives are built atop of web work of collaboration and exchange between individuals, governments, and businesses. When it all works in concert, we end up with a kind of everyday magic Life made easier by a thousand tricks just outside our vision. And that's how Alec Ross's book, The Raging 2020s, Companies, Countries, People, and the Fight for Our Future begins. It sucked me in from the very beginning. It's about the collision that is taking place at the intersection of government, business, and citizens. His prior book, The Industries of the Future, was translated into 24 languages and a bestseller on five continents. I've known Alec for a little over a decade now, but today he's going to be joining us to talk about his latest release, but also a little bit about his time in government, because he's not only a New York Times bestselling author, but he also served as the senior advisor on innovation for Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. Before that, Alec led technology and media policy for Barack Obama's 2008 presidential campaign and has also fought to raise awareness of the importance of digital equity around the world. Alec, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me today, buddy. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. So let me just start off by saying congrats on the new book. Uh, it, it sucked me in from the very beginning, especially as you kicked it off, talking about all the interrelationships we have with government in our daily lives, even some that aren't as obvious. I'm curious to know if there was an aha moment or some kind of catalyst you had um, to, to motivate you to write this book, or is this something that really came together in installments over time? No, this was a slow burn, so to speak. You know, I'm one of those authors, I don't write a book every year, I write a book every five years. And so this was really the product of years of observation and research. And, you know, thinking about the central theme of the raging 2020s, you know, is the future going to look more like Mad Max or more like Star Trek? 
you know, that's the kind of thing that I didn't wake up and come to a specific point of view, but rather it's a, it was a process of discovery. Um, and even in writing this book, I didn't try to be the voice of God saying, this is what's happening. This is what we need to do. Even here, part of what I'm trying to do is introduce the reader to a process to understand what's really going on in the world. So I, I'm going to take a deeper dive into the book in a second, but I did want to touch a little bit about your time in government. You were the first ever senior advisor for innovation at the Department of State where you you worked with Hillary Clinton during your time there. What were some of the challenges you faced when you first got there as you, you sought to bring diplomacy into the 21st century? Well, you know, first, a lot of people who come from the private sector and go into government and come out, you know, view it somewhat negatively. And I got to say, I had the opposite experience. I thought that our government employees were outstanding. I thought that the diplomats and civil servants at, at the State Department were working their hearts out for the American people. So I came out of it with, with a tremendous experience. I guess if there were two things that I were to focus on as particular challenges is one, this will be super obvious. It's the degree to which the, the bureaucracy and bureaucratic practices are entrenched and oftentimes entrenched as an end unto themselves. You know, people forget why the layers of bureaucracy and process even exist anymore, uh, and oftentimes think in terms of bureaucratic process as opposed to outcomes. Uh, everybody knows that, we all know that, but I can't respond to that question without mentioning that. And then the second thing, and this is understandable, is risk. Uh, there is a, tr a remarkable risk aversion in the public sector. And it's because if you make a mistake, you get annihilated, you get blown up. By contrast, in the private sector, there's a higher tolerance for risk. And if you're doing something like innovation, you can't do innovation in a risk-free environment. Uh, so I was a very different sort of animal to come into government, but it did work in part because I did have the political cover from President Obama and Secretary Clinton. And so obviously, as you were talking there, you can tell uh, you thought really highly of your time. I, I get a lot of government leaders on here that really push private sector leaders to spend some time in the public sector to get that understanding of of how it operates and how to best partner with them. And I'm curious to know, did you take any lessons away that have really stayed with you as as you bend back into the private sector and work to um, work to teach people how to innovate? Yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot. I mean, first and foremost, what I will point to, and I often have, times have to point this out to my friends in the private sector who think that they're geniuses and think that they're doing the most important work on planet Earth. The work done in government is actually indispensable and actually, and oftentimes far more important than the work they are doing. Um, and so I do, I, it, it, it irritates me when I hear people diminish and demean our public ser servants uh, because they built some app. Um, that makes, you know, customer relationship management one one thousandth of a second faster or something like that. And so what I really took out of it first was that our, our public servants are capable and that they're mission oriented. Uh, in terms of innovation, I don't know that I learned anything in the public sector. I think you, I, I do think it's easier to learn about innovation in the private sector. Um, but I did learn about the global architecture for all of this work, the sort of grand context that exists in all of the work that we do. You use the word indispensable there, and I think you look no further than perhaps the Department of Defense as, as being absolutely indispensable to national security and so many other things. 
And you recently published an article in The Atlantic where you talked about the importance of bringing together technologists that are in Silicon Valley with the people charged with defense and national security at the Pentagon to not only focus on building technology, but also policies that impact the use of the technology like AI. And this was published right before um, the now former chief software officer for the U.S. Air Force resigned, saying the U.S. had lost the battle around AI with, with China and that we were in danger. I'm really curious to get your take on how you see the private sector being able to help the U.S. catch up in this arms race, but also partner, truly partner um, with government to, to drive innovation forward. So unlike the period during and after World War II, <clears throat> excuse me, where a lot of the skills actually lived inside government, to innovate, to drive solutions in energy policy, for example, you you would find the world's greatest expertise inside our national labs. Uh, DARPA was always a center of remarkable innovation, and those places continue to be home to centers. They, con- they continue to be centers of excellence. But as a practical matter, when you think about technologies like artificial intelligence, machine learning, and robotics, the very simple basic fact of the matter is that most of that skill exists in the private sector. And the Chinese, what the Chinese have is they have a private sector and a public sector, which is in many respects a distinction without meaning. They are, you know, in, in my book, The Raging 2020s, I go fairly deep into the integration of the public and private sectors in China, specifically on artificial intelligence. Now, we do not have that deep integration in the United States, and perhaps we shouldn't, uh, where the government in Be- Beijing essentially is giving instructions to its private sector. But what we can do is coordinate and collaborate much more closely. And as you said, not just for technology development, but on policy. And the problem on policy is you oftentimes get public uh, policymakers who really don't understand the technology, who really uh, are on the outside looking in when they try to come to grasp with this with this technology. And by contrast, you oftentimes get technologists who understand the technology, but but lack an understanding of its geopolitical context. And for that reason, I really think that a dialogue and a real working dialogue is very necessary uh, for America's private sector and for particularly for its national security agencies and its legislative bodies. So I want to pivot a little bit and kind of uh, dive into to your latest book. And one of the things, topics we've talked about on this show a fair amount, especially um, after the pandemic kicked off, was around digital equity. Um, and equity is obviously a, a major theme of your book. Uh, you started off say, stating that over the past 30 years, the top 1% have grown $21 trillion, with a T richer, while the bottom 50% have grown $900 billion, with a B poorer and that the middle class is stagnated. And the source of this inequality is rooted in a philosophy a philosophy espoused by, by Milton Friedman, shareholder capitalism versus stakeholder capitalism. Can you explain this philosophy to the listeners? Sure. I mean, basically the concept is if we make a dollar, if a, if a company makes a dollar, where should that dollar go? Under the concept of shareholder capitalism, the University of Chicago School of Economic Theory, you know, all, Every cent of that dollar needs to go to the shareholders, the company owners, the equity holders. Uh, And for a penny to go to an employee or a surrounding community or or for anything else, 
it has to be litigated in a way that ultimately is beneficial to the shareholders. By contrast, stakeholder capitalism, which is the form of capitalism that dominated the United States and that defined the United States during its periods of greatest economic growth, you know, after the World War II through the 50s six and, and 60s and then into the 70s and 80s, stakeholder capitalism is as deeply capitalistic as shareholder capitalism, but its view is that if you make a dollar, then there should be a fair apportionment of the benefit of that dollar between shareholders, company employees, and other stakeholders, including, for example, its surrounding community. So I'll just make this concrete in sort of two ways. When I was growing up in West Virginia, there were lots of companies based in West Virginia. And the CEO's kids would go to the same school as the middle manager's kids. And the company that worked in Charleston, West Virginia, would do things like support the United Way campaign in the Little League. That was sort of stakeholder capitalism. Shareholder capitalism held that if that company is based in West Virginia, it's making a mistake because it ought to domicile itself in a tax-optimized location like Delaware or Texas or something like this. And so throughout most of middle America, uh, we've seen our small and medium size and even large cities lose its corporate headquarters as everybody sort of escaped to these coastal tax enclaves. And then what we saw is that, is that things like a responsibility of a company to its surrounding community, uh, you know, supporting the Little League, supporting the United Way or arts programs, because that takes a penny away from the shareholders, it is not to be done. And so that's why we've seen in many respects a hollowing out of a company's commitment to its community. And then the last aspect I'll point to is the relationship between, a comp- between the employer and the employee. Under shareholder capitalism, the belief is that as soon as it makes se- sense, even one cent of difference to terminate an employee versus retain an employee, you need to terminate that employee. Under stakeholder capitalism, there's a multi-year commitment to employees that even if there's a downturn, they if it's a good, hard-working employee, you hold on to them through the downturn, and then on the back end, um, it'll be made up for because you've kept them inside the company. So there are two different visions and models of capitalism. No, and it was really interesting because you you take a look at kind of where the investments are being made. One of the one of the things we look at within government, especially around innovation, is a lot of the budgets right now are being invested on just maintaining the status quo and very little is going to uh, innovation. Um, I, I'm really interested because later you talked about consolidation and and that's been happening with large organizations acquiring market share through M&A. I really, it, it really hit home with the, the, the farming analogy that, and, that you made. I'm curious to know how you see smaller organizations, though, being able to compete with some of the larger organizations um, in government, when governments really tend to prioritize working with kind of these larger, more experienced companies or primes? Yeah, this is an interesting thing because it's very American. Uh, This is not true in most of the the vast majority of the rest of the world. But the, the degree to which America has gone from being a country defined by small and medium sized enterprises. And by medium size, I mean like up to a thousand employees. I'm not talking about ma and pa with a storefront. I'm talking about organizations with hundreds and, you know, up to a thousand or more employees. 
But the degree to which our economy has gone from being defined by organizations of that size to companies uh, with you know tens of billions of dollars on their bank sheet and tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, employees is fairly dramatic. And it has made competition more difficult for medium-sized businesses, in part because the way so many contracts are structured is that you have to be a jumbo player to be a prime. Um, and oftentimes the primes want to acquire any of the smaller, medium-sized enterprises that are out there that have uh, real specialization that's also high margin. So it's gotten increasingly difficult to be a smaller, medium-sized player unless you have complete command over a given niche, you know, a given product or program set. If, for example, you're a government contractor, unless you own this one little space, it's really hard to play broadly, horizontally uh, in the competitive government contracting process where you are competing against companies that are the size themselves of countries. When I feel like you, you get the most innovation happening with some of these smaller, um, I mean, there's sometimes there's, there's two guys in a garage somewhere that are innovating um, better than some of these larger primes and it, some of these smaller, medium-sized businesses. That's where a lot of this happens. Have you seen this consolidation trend stagnate innovation and the disruption that these smaller companies could cause for the good? It has. I mean, it, the very simple fact of the matter is that going back to an earlier part of our discussion, Brian, where I said, you know, government, as important and wonderful as it is, is actually not that great a place to actually do the innovation. And then now I'm talking about how some of these companies are as big as countries. Well, a lot the companies that are as big as countries are oftentimes very difficult places to do organic innovation. And it does, in fact, come, come from smaller and medium-sized businesses. And the fact that the big businesses have sucked up all the oxygen, the fact that they have taken up all of the real estate uh, economically does, I believe, inhibit innovation. And it makes it difficult for uh, government oftentimes to take to contract with some of these smaller entities uh, that are developing promising technologies. A lot of what is happening is, as you said, Brian, M and A. So a small and medium sized company will develop something interesting, and the way that it actually ends up coming to market is it's acquired by a larger entity. Um, it's a fascinating process that's taking place right now, which I'll be honest, I don't love. I do like the idea of people getting liquidity when they sell their businesses, but I don't think it ought to be the case that you that you have to that you have to be acquired in order to bring your product or service to market. Well, I've also th- seen too a lot of these larger companies when they acquire. Um, uh, let's just say company A, they're also looking at company B and C that are playing in the same market. And just to diversify and potentially be successful in that market, they might acquire more than one. And then you get this great idea that could have disrupted the market if it had time to incubate. And it goes into this um, bureaucratic kind of process-driven organization and it just kind of dies on the vine. Well, even more malignant than that are sometimes is the practice of companies buying other companies for the purposes of killing it. And we're seeing very more, true, you know, Alphabet is famous for this, you know, Alphabet being the parent organization of Google, they will buy companies, in part to acquire some of the the employees that are there. But oftentimes, they will buy companies in order to kill the product. 
Uh, and that is that that's fascinating where they see a product that could compete with their own and rather than even try to integrate it or bring it into market themselves they buy the company using the power of their balance sheet as a way of putting a gun to the head of the of the of the acquired company's product set as we talk about companies right now i feel like it's it's also becoming a trend and and you've you've talked about uh, things like sustainability and, and tech for good as, as well in, in the book. Um, and that feels like it's becoming a trend, um, with global companies, especially the larger ones, perhaps it's my cynicism, but it, it feels like it's a marketing narrative. Sometimes I, I'm interested to know, do you see programs like this building momentum over the next decade and, and can it really make a difference? I think that a lot of it is PR. Uh, I think a lot of it is. Ultimately, the most effective examples of companies building, building products and services, which then create uh, an overall, a, a better society, they marry together what's good for the company with, with what's good for the world. Uh, and sometimes that's still difficult. But in, you know, in, in my book, in the Raging 2020s, I give two examples. I do a case study on Goldman Sachs's board diversity initiative, and mm-hmm. I focus on Walmart and what they did to make their supply chain more sustainable. Now, in both cases, what they did might have looked like PR at the beginning or corporate social responsibility, but it actually had a fairly dramatic impact on the market. And it actually ended up being good for both Walmart's bottom line and for both Goldman Sachs and Goldman Sachs's uh, IPO'd companies good for their bottom line. And so ultimately, we, are, we as human beings are governed by incentives. Whether it's, in, whether it's for love, whether it's for power, whether it's for money, ultimately we are creatures of incentives. And the only way that you know, we're going to execute against sustainability goals or other such things is not through sort of kumbaya, do the right thing. It's through creating incentives in the marketplace that make it in a company's interest to allocate capital and build products. Uh, in a way that executes against those goals. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think a, a lot of what they're doing right now, um, it feels like they're kind of placating to a, a new generation that really takes a lot of this uh, to heart around the sustainability, climate change, et cetera. Um, so it, it's just a way of them kind of bringing that next generation in. Uh, Alec, I really appreciate the time today. Would love uh, to give you some some time to give your final thoughts to the audience before you leave. Well, thank you, Brian, and thank you all for listening in. You know, what I, what I will leave you with is the, the thought that whether the future looks more like Mad Max or more like Star Trek is entirely up to us. The Raging 2020s tries to, to provide a little light in the darkness. It tries to give us a little view into this decade that started off in a really rough way with a global pandemic with deep and oftentimes violent political divisions and says, all right, you know, if it's true that every act of creation begins with an, ad- with an act of destruction, how out of the destruction of our political division, how out of the destruction of a pandemic can we not just repair, not just bring, not just go back to how things were previously, but how can we come out of this stronger in a way in which, again, it's not voice of God, but tell some stories that I hope are fun or entertaining and, and illuminate a little bit what's going on in the world. 
Yeah. So two things. One, I think you're right. The 2020s really kicked off going downhill with the pandemic in, in the worst way possible and probably accelerated um, some of the things that you talked about in the book. But second, I again, congrats on the book. It, it's it's a very difficult topic to to make a page turner and I couldn't put it down. Well, so thank you very much. So That's really, kind of you. Really enjoyed it. One last question before you go. Uh, fun question, but I want to put you on the spot here. Um, I know you grew up in West Virginia, but you're now a, a Maryland uh, resident. You even ran for governor uh, of Maryland a few years ago. My brother-in-law, who lives up in Maryland, will not will not buy a crab cake anywhere else unless it's a Maryland crab cake. And I need to know, you, you can put this to bed right now, Alec. Will you get a crab cake anywhere else other than Maryland? No. There you go. Absolutely, positively not. They just they they don't taste right, man. No, Uh, there's only one. There's only one place in the world to buy a crab cake, and that is in the state of Maryland. Oh, Chris, if you're listening, you win, buddy. Uh, Alec, thank you again for the time today. Uh, Really, really enjoyed the conversation, and I definitely recommend this book, "The Raging 2020s: Companies, Countries, People, and the Fight for Our Future." Go check it out now. Alex, thanks again. Thank you, Brian. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. This is the Government Huddle Podcast. At GovExec, we catalyze the government mission. No other go-to market partner provides a complete solution to launch, cultivate, and accelerate your government revenue streams. GovExec provides government contractors with a full suite of decision support tools, including real-time predictive intelligence, community activation, and performance marketing. We empower the industry to target the right audience of government decision makers and solve society's biggest challenges. Visit about.govexec.com to learn how to accelerate your sales enablement. All right, guys, welcome back to the Government Huddle podcast. I'm joined now by Annie John, and Annie is actually a coworker of mine at OpenText, but more importantly, she's been volunteering her time as uh, maybe several of our listeners have, uh, to AFSIA DC. Annie, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So tell me a little bit about how you got involved with AFSIA DC and what you guys are doing right now. That is a great question. Well, I've been involved with AFSIA International for more than 10 years, just working in the DoD and Intel space and really appreciating what AFSIA does for the community and how they bring together public and private sectors and provide so many training opportunities. And I got more involved with DC specifically because some of our public sector team members at OpenText have been involved in in the DC chapter and suggested um, that chapter might be a good fit for me. So I I moved over to DC and then met Chris Vitidis, who was working on the Toys for Tots campaign and, and asked if I could help out with that. So um, that helped me springboard into getting even more plugged in with FCA DC. And we're going to talk for Toys for Tots in a second, but t- tell the listeners a little bit about what FCA DC offers its members. So what you, you mentioned learning opportunities, I'm sure it's kind of it helped helped you advance your career in a number of ways, but what does the organization offer offer its members? It is. It's a number of different networking opportunities. So the DC chapter itself sponsors a monthly luncheon on different topics. We just had one around diversity, equity, and inclusion. We have another in December around cloud strategy. 
And again, it, it brings together people from the government and also from industry. So it provides a, a really good networking opportunity on both sides and an opportunity to listen to what the needs are of the government and for private sector to figure out ways to, to fill them. And we also have a number of other types of events in addition to the luncheon, like the winter gala that the the toy drive is a part of. That's awesome. And so let's let's talk about that a little bit. Obviously, everybody listening, I'm sure, knows what Toys for Tots is. I, I, I donate every year. Um, I haven't done it with FCA DC before, uh, but my family and I look to, to donate gifts in the program. But what is FCA DC doing specifically around Toys for Tots? I know this is a partnership that's gone back um, a few years now, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it actually, I'm not totally sure when the partnership itself started, but Toys for Tots, like you said, it's been around for a long time. It's an initiative from the U.S. Marine Corps, and its mission is to collect like new toys for kids in need. And AFSIA saw that, AFSIA DC specifically saw that, that need and that opportunity. And we had this event every year, this fabulous winter gala, and so, well, we can do something. Let's ask our attendees to bring toys to the gala and it's, it's grown significantly uh, now. So we have an Amazon wish list and, and we can talk more, like you said, about ways, ways to get involved. But FCSI saw an opportunity to uh, provide service and thought that the Marine Corps' mission and the Toys for Tots program was a great fit. So tell me a little bit about the gala too. So can you sponsor that? Can you attend that? What does that look like? And do you have to be a member to attend? So it's a definitely a charity event. Anybody can attend. We welcome everybody to attend. This year, it's being held on December 9th at the National Building Museum, and it has a Starry Night theme. It is going to be incredible, just beautiful, like a, a German Christmas market set up with little booths and incredible food and, and drinks. And it's really, again, another fantastic networking opportunity because we invite both public and private sector. Again, anybody can join. Anybody's welcome to buy a ticket. And a lot of our government clients will come and bring their spouses also. So it's an opportunity to, to see people like outside of work, sometimes outside of uniform as well. It's it's really a, a fun event. I know I've, I haven't attended before, but Open Text is sponsoring this year. And with that, um, I'm going to be able to attend and I'm looking forward to it like a lot of people. Not not even because of all the, the reasons you stated, but just to be able to get out of my house and go to an event, which has been a long time coming. I think I would imagine there's a lot of people that are excited to get out there and, and attend that that gala, right? Yeah, definitely. We've had a really great response to it. And not just an opportunity to get out of your house, but to dress up too. Put on real clothes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, so tell the listeners how they can get involved beyond just buying tickets to the gala or even joining a membership with, with FCA DC, but specifically around Toys for Tots. What's the best way to get involved if they wanted to help out? So all of the above can be found on AFCA DC's website, which I will tell you, I personally am a huge fan of Google. If you just Google AFCA DC, that's A-F-C-E-A space DC. Uh, that's an easy way to find it. Or quickly, the their web address is dcevents.afcachapters.org. And on that page, you'll find a link to the Winter Gala at the top of it. You'll see a registration button. That's an easy way to get involved. If you scroll down the page, you can learn more about different opportunities like for sponsorship. If your company is interested in sponsoring like one of those, those German Christmas market booths or having your logo on a napkin, something like that. There's a, a whole link on that page to find out about the gala sponsorship opportunities. And there's also a link to Toys for Tots 
on that page, which brings you to another one that has buttons that says like donate toys. It takes you directly to our AFSIA DC Toys for Tots wish list. There's a button that says donate money. The easiest way for us to receive the said money is through an Amazon gift card. And that again is purchased through the Amazon wish list. And we use all of the money donated from that are, is used to buy toys from the Amazon wish list. Or we have different companies in the area that we've been giving boxes. Some people are actually working in the office again. So some people are doing in-person collections and we are, are collecting those boxes uh, the week of December 6th. So employees have until then to donate uh, or anybody, again, can go to the Amazon wish list. Um, easiest way to find it is, again, through AFCA's website, dcevents.afceachapters.org, and then click on the Winter Gala link and scroll down. Fantastic. They say, think globally, act locally. This sounds like a great yes. opportunity to ju do just that. A hundred percent. Yes, it definitely. The, I mean, it feels so good to get these toys. When you think about the toys, like be strategic about the ones you choose and think about the value you would get out of that and the value it's going to bring. Uh, we do a lot around like promoting STEM toys specifically because I'm sure we all recognize the need for STEM in the community. And it's it's neat that just through giving them a, a toy, something fun, we're literally going to make the world a better place. That's so cool. Annie, thanks, thanks for volunteering and doing this and coming on the show to talk a little bit about what you guys are doing. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. We really appreciate your support and I can't wait to see you at the gala. And don't forget to remind your family and yourself to bring a toy. Definitely. I hope everybody enjoyed the show today, including uh, my first segment with Alec Ross. I encourage you to go out and buy a copy of his book, The Raging 2020s. Um, this has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to gmarku.com or wherever you access your podcast. And feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or on Twitter at Chittastray B. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.